I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Evening, Ms. Stuart Brand. As usual, incest is bad in biology, but probably good in, in uh, intellectual affairs. And I didn't really realize this, uh, that Alex Wright, who's speaking tonight, has already been a part of the Long Now operation. Jim Mason found him a couple of years ago when we were just starting the Rosetta Project to get all the languages in the world online. And Alex came out and was the information architect for the uh, original Rosetta site, wireframed it up and uh, got it in, in the direction it is now advancing rapidly. Uh, I was just asking him beforehand, uh, now that you're the information architect for the New York Times, what exactly does that mean? And I realized it was going to be a long answer, so if you want to, if he doesn't explain during the talk, ask him about it afterwards. The thing that I guess is common with most of the talks in this series is we look at phenomena that are usually looked at in terms of their scope and breadth, impact, but not so often in terms of their time depth. And the time depth gives you this other perspective on all sorts of things. And something that is obsessing us more and more from week to week, day to day, cell phones and whatnot, is managing information. Uh, they say this is the biological century. It's also still an accelerating information century. And so the long-term perspective on dealing with that is what we've got tonight from Alex Wright. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you, Stuart, and thank you, Xander, and uh, Danielle for, for setting this up tonight, and thanks to all of you for, for coming out. Um, so it's a real, uh, I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, I've been a longtime fan of the Long Now Foundation, and as Stuart mentioned, I've done some work with them in the past, and I'm a member, and I hope you all are too. And, um, you know, especially as a first-time and, you know, relatively unknown author, it's, you know, it's a great opportunity. I'm really uh, pleased to have the chance to talk about uh, some of the ideas in my book. Um, so, you know, my book just came out a few weeks ago, and uh, I've been doing a little bit of publicity around it. And... Uh, uh, a couple of interviews, and a few weeks ago I did a uh, quick little email interview with uh, some folks at Powell's Books up in Portland, Oregon. I don't know if people have heard of them. Great little, great big independent bookstore up there, right? Yeah, definitely buy your books online from them. Uh, it's, uh, anyway, so they sent me this little Q&A, and they asked, one of the questions they asked was, uh, what was your favorite book as a child? And I had to think about that for a little while, and I didn't really have a single favorite book, but, you know, the ones that came to my different times, you know, the ones that might have come to mind would be like... Uh, Maybe the Phantom Toll Booth or uh, A Wrinkle in Time, or you know, I wasn't going to say Lord of the Rings, although that was probably true. But um, <laughs> but uh, the book that I ended up mentioning, and this is going to sound like I'm I'm playing to the crowd here, but this is honest to God what I said was uh, the whole Earth catalog. <laughs> so, um, and uh, the reason reason I mentioned this was uh, when I was about ten years old, uh, my parents had these friends 
in uh, Cambridge, Mass, kind of these uh, hippie friends. And uh, I guess they weren't really, actually, he was a physics professor, but they were f philosophical hippies. Right? And uh, they started sending me the whole Earth catalog every time, every year that it came out. I don't think it was every year, but whenever it came out, they would send me a copy of it. And uh, I didn't really know what to make of it at first. I would just sort of flip through it and think it was kind of a bunch of, kind of you know, interesting, strange stuff in here. Uh, like stories about, you know, how to build your own yurt or how to go kayaking or, you know, all, it was just a real mishmash of stuff. I think they had a page about the Kama Sutra, which I think was particularly fascinating. You know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, uh, but it also had, um, as I recall, this whole section on uh, whole systems and this whole idea that, I mean, what was interesting to me about the book, and over time I started to sort of understand it a little bit, um, was it took this sort of uh, broad view and this sort of, this, this had this sort of approach to uh, really tying together a lot of seemingly sort of disconnected information and uh, presenting it in, in, a very, in, a, in a new sort of context. And it was very different from most books and you couldn't really read it from front to back, but it was really just a lot of sort of chunk, you know, little chunks of information that were sort of pulled together in interesting ways. And uh, a lot of people have, I think, since, you know, made the... Uh, argument that in a way it sort of anticipated the web, which I think is true. I, I can't say as a 12-year-old I had any great vision of that. I think I was you know, more interested in the Kama Sutra. But, um, but, uh, but it did, I think, have a sort of point of view to it, which was this notion that, um, that, that things were connected and that, you know, that we could look at sort of the artifacts of human culture in, uh, in a larger context, in kind of an um, ecological context, and looking at and understanding that um, you know, that we could actually look at what we do, you know, the, the kind of systems we create as part of maybe, you know, larger systems or looking at, you know, how systems work in nature. And so I think that's it's a very interesting um, sort of point of view there that I think has, uh, has had legs. And I think especially as the web has taken shape, a lot of people have started to think about it in those terms as, you know, um, possibly a kind of, you know, as being sort of an ecosystem or as being maybe even having some, possibly some kind of evolutionary significance. And that's something I'm going to talk about a little bit. Um, but this sort of gets me into the, uh, what I want to talk about tonight, which is this um, notion of deep history. And the term deep history gets, it doesn't, it's not a real uh, clearly defined term. Different people use it in different ways. But uh, the way I'm using it tonight is, is, uh, it's really a way of, of looking at human culture in, on sort of an evolutionary timeline. So as opposed to the sort of traditional you know, narrative of certainly Western culture, which usually starts about, you know, what, two, 3,000 years ago with the Greeks usually, um, the idea is to maybe take a sort of a longer view and to try to explore whether there are uh, patterns that we can recognize uh, in some of our, in, in, you know, more in, even in recent human history, that might be part of a longer-term trajectory that we could actually explore in terms of, uh, you know, of, of evolution. Uh, another way of putting it might be, you know, um, right, so, <laughs> so, so the question I want to ask tonight is really, you know, can we say that information systems evolve? And if so, what does that tell us about um, you know, the, the sort of experience that we're all going through today. I think we all, you know, can look around and see that we're, we're living in kind of a, you know, pretty interesting time and that there's uh, obviously a huge volume of information being produced right now in all kinds of new ways and we're seeing all kinds of uh, social change and cultural change and, you know, political change and, you know, we're going through a period of a lot of disruption. Um, and as I say, there, there, there have been people who have suggested that this is some sort of evolutionary leap forward. Well, I think we have to be... Uh, a little bit careful about that, but I want to give you a couple of examples of people who've sort of tried to make this case. One is Ray Kurzweil, who I saw give a talk at the Long Now Foundation, I think a year or two ago, 
Um, and he makes the case that you know, the, the emergence of network computers is this basically an evolutionary event that we're effectively um, seeing the, uh, the emergence of a new kind of global intelligence that, uh, you know, that is on par with the creation of a new species or something. So it's a pretty, you know, and he's, Kurzweil is a you know, brilliant guy. He's, he's out there, but, uh, but this is certainly a point of view that has some, you know, credibility. Um, this was also, uh, similar lines, uh, Danny Hillis, uh, another long now person, uh, this is from an article in Wired a few years ago, Makes a, made a similar sort of case that, uh, you know, we, we are living through a period where we could look at this as sort of an, you know, an evolutionary leap forward, right? Well, I think we have to be a little careful with words like evolution. And before we start uh, sort of completely buying to this notion that, you know, that information systems literally evolve, I think we have to really recognize that there are some pretty uh, strong and, and fairly, uh, you know, legitimate objections to, to using the word evolution in that context. I think uh, the late Stephen Jay Gould probably uh, voiced this as well as anybody, where he suggested that really using the term evolution as a uh, descriptor for the way human cultural systems uh, move forward is a little bit misleading. And he made the case that, and one sort of common fallacy is this notion that, evolu that evolution equals progress. And his point of view was that, you know, if you really look uh, in the history, in, at the sort of evolutionary history of the planet, uh, the most successful species on Earth ha are and have always been bacteria. Right? They've been around for two billion years. They haven't really changed much, and yet they are the dominant, you know, by any objective measure, the dominant life form on Earth. Right? And so they're an evolutionary success story that really hasn't had to do much. Right? Um, so when we start, start to sort of give ourselves, you know, too much credit, you know, as, you know, in, in evolutionary terms, I think it's worth keeping in mind that our own experience is pretty limited and um, that, uh, you know, we should really define our terms carefully before we start, you know, talking about evolution. Uh, this is a, a phrase that's often used by uh, uh, so-called cultural relativists who object to the whole idea of talking about uh, human culture in sort of biological terms. Uh, it means uh, all culture comes from culture. So the argument is that all um, the culture is, human culture is such a complex phenomenon that it can't be reduced to sort of simple biological evolution. Not that evolution is simple, but that, it, that it's a complex phenomenon that cultural phenomena come out of culture and that it's not predictable and it can't, you know, we, we have to be careful about trying to, um, you know, boil that down to a simplistic argument. So I think it's worth acknowledging those objections before I get into this because I'm going to talk a bit about the ways in which I think uh, evolutionary theory actually does apply to the, to the uh, progression of information systems, but I want to at least acknowledge the objections and, and talk about you know, how far maybe we can take that case. So. so just to go all the way back, um, uh, so the, the very early, if we look at the very earliest uh, uh, you know, emergence of life on Earth, uh, or at least complex life, complex organic life, um, for a long time, the, the, the conventional wisdom in, among biologists was that uh, you know, life forms evolved as sort of individual units, and that you had you know, simple life forms that progressively, you know, uh, through adaptation, became more complex and more specialized and eventually resulted in you know, very complex organisms like ourselves. Well, uh, a couple of decades ago, a biologist named Lynn Margulis sort of challenged that conventional wisdom, and she suggested that actually... Uh, we could look at the origin of life in a different way. And her theory was that uh, the very earliest complex life forms actually emerged uh, as kind of social collectives. And so 
her theory is that actually the earliest uh, sort of multicellular life took shape as uh, unit as individual single cell organisms started to collaborate and work together and effectively sort of exchange data with each other, and that over time those uh, sort of social collectives coalesced into uh, larger organisms that eventually started to, to cohere. Uh, and then to make a very long, and I'm you know, radically oversimplifying uh, here, but, but over time, uh, those complex, those larger life forms then also started to aggregate into sort of social organizations. And so the reason this is interesting, I think, is it, it raises the question of, of what's the boundary between sort of an individual uh, life for in, individual unit of life and sort of a, a social organization. And can it be said that a social organization evolves? Um, and so if you take this point of view, it would suggest that, yes, there is a sense in which uh, social units actually do kind of evolve in the same way that individual life forms evolve. So how does that work? Well, there are a couple of um, sort of patterns at work there. One is uh, networks. So at, you know, at the simplest level, uh, at all sorts of, sort of levels of the biological hierarchy, there are um, uh, th- there's this pattern of networks of sort of um, entities that coalesce into kind of self-organizing groups that, that are sort of flat. There's not really a top, but they tend to um, sort of you know come together or drift apart in a sort of you know self-organizing way. The other pattern at work is uh, hierarchies, and what you see in the uh, you know, in the history of complex life forms is that as networks take shape, they tend to give rise to hierarchies that emerge out of those networks. And so in the case of organic life, you had, uh, you know, networks of individual uh, organisms came together, and over time, new sort of hierarchies like complex life forms emerged. Then as those, uh, as those complex organisms started to come together, they also formed sort of social networks. Over time, new kinds of uh, sort of social hierarchies emerged out of that. So there's this sort of pattern of networks giving rise to hierarchies, which in turn coalesce into networks, which in turn give rise to new hierarchies. So this is sort of a theme that I try to work with in the book, is, is that how far does that pattern really go, and what can that tell us about the way that, uh, uh, that, or, that people and other animals actually interact with each other? And, and is there something we can learn from that in terms of thinking about uh, information systems. So we can look at uh, uh, you know, throughout the animal kingdom there are all kinds of examples of uh, these sorts of dynamics at work uh, and I'm not going to go too deep into this but, uh, but in the book I do spend some time looking at the uh, for instance at the, uh, the study of insect colonies which I think are a great example of how uh, these sort of social organisms take shape where you have um, units of sort of fairly simple individual life forms who come together and a sort of more, uh, you know, a, a higher kind of intelligence emerges out of their interaction. Uh, so if you, there's all kinds of stories about uh, ant colonies and beehives and how they, they function in a sense as kind of information processing machines that, that have uh, certain uh, characteristics that seem to not be predicted by the individual intelligence of the, of the organism. And if we go further uh, sort of up the chain into more complex life forms. I don't know why that's not working. Let's see. Uh, we can also see these sort of, sorts of patterns in other animals as well. So you, this, this notion of kind of a, a superorganism, that is uh, an entity that's made up of individual life forms that, where the, uh, the social group takes on its own sort of characteristics and, and 
functions as a, almost as a kind of higher brain function for the group, but with a kind of distributed intelligence. And these kinds of uh, phenomena have often be, been used as kind of a metaphor for the web, where we see also uh, this very distributed kind of intelligence, where we have you know, a network that's very flat, and yet we seem to see uh, you know, certain kinds of um, clusters or or sort of ad hoc organizations emerge uh, out of an otherwise flat network. And so there's a, a lot of uh, computer scientists have actually looked at these sorts of biological models of computing as, uh, as uh, frameworks for thinking about the way, uh, the way computers work. And uh, Kevin Kelly's written about this one uh, very eloquently and out of control, and, and quite a few other folks have sort of explored this, this sort of theme. So I think there is a, a case to be made that there are information systems uh, at work in the natural world, and that there are these sorts of patterns um, seem to exist, and if that's true, you know, if we can say that uh, other animals do sort of traffic in information and that they have something like, uh, I don't know if we call it a system or at least a, a strategy for, uh, for exchanging information with each other, um, then we can start to, to ask the question, you know, how does that, what is the mechanism by which that sort of uh, phenomena happens? Because we can't necessarily explain that purely in terms of genetic evolution. In other words, uh, you know, if we just sort of look at the DNA level, there's only so much that's really going to tell us about these sort of uh, social interactions. So there is a pretty compelling theory out there that sort of explains how this works. Um, uh, Professor uh, E.O. Wilson, a uh, famous uh, biologist at Harvard, he's the guy who coined the term social biology. I'm sure a lot of people I know he is. Uh, he has this theory of epigenetic rules. And an epigenetic rule, as he defines it, is a, it's basically a, it's, it's a concept. There's not an actual, you know, biological thing you can point to. But the idea is that it's, uh, it's a framework for explaining how certain kinds of uh, processes, sort of cognitive processes or mental capacities get, uh, get, evolved, get evolved that actually enable a social organization to create culture. In other words, uh, it explains how uh, individual organisms over time develop certain characteristics through genetic inheritance that enable cultural behaviors to be transmitted from generation to generation. And his argument is that uh, through epigenetic rules, certain cultural patterns emerge that are actually passed on through culture from generation to generation, and, and those patterns are reinforced uh, in the genetic code. So this is kind of a, a little bit of a complex idea, but I hope it's making at least a little bit of sense. So he gives a few examples of uh, epigenetic rules. So he distinguishes between primary and secondary uh, rules. So the primary, a primary epigenetic rule would be the fact that we all perceive sort of the same range of the color spectrum would be kind of a primary epigenetic rule. We all are all equipped to sort of see things in the same way. Um, similarly, a lot of our sort of senses sort of... Uh, seem to be governed by this kind of, you know, there's some value to humanity as a whole in us all seeing the same color spectrum or hearing the same range of sound. But he then takes that argument a little bit further, and this is where it gets a little controversial. He suggests that you can also use this framework to explain, for instance, why in every known human culture uh, that's ever been studied, people are afraid of snakes, right? Well, there's no gene that tells us to be afraid of snakes, that's nothing, no, there's no gene you can point to as far as we know. I think from all the genetic sequencing they're doing, they haven't found the fear of snakes gene. And yet, uh, everybody, pretty much, you know, not, maybe not everybody's afraid of snakes, but all cultures have some sort of, uh, you know, 
serpent mythology or some reason, you know, so there's something about, about us that seems to be predisposed to fearing snakes. Uh, and so the way he would explain that is that it's sort of a combination of genes and that, that basically over a long period of time, the people that were afraid of snakes were much more likely to pass on their genes than the people who weren't afraid of snakes. Right? So, so, so it's, you know... Uh, so he takes it a little bit further even, and this is where it really does, he gets into you know, a very contentious area. He suggests that you can also use this to explain why there are so many um, uh, similar narrative archetypes in human cultures. For instance, the, the, the hero's descent, uh, the presence of trickster gods and all kinds of mythologies. He goes so far as to suggest that there's some uh, evolutionary basis that these sorts of uh, archetypes actually have an evolutionary role in uh, in helping to helping the group to uh, survive and and reproduce, that there's some value in these sort of you know in certain kinds of uh, of cultural archetypes in actually creating a, a stable cultural system that actually benefits the, the larger group. And the last one on this list is really uh, where I think it gets particularly interesting. He su- he suggests and uh, and there's a lot of data to back this up that also our, our uh, propensity for categorizing information also has something to do with an epigenetic rule. So let me give you an example of what that means. So if we think about it... Whoops, sorry. Let's go back for a sec. Okay, well, so... Um, so, in every known human culture that's ever been studied, uh, people categorize information about plants and animals. And if you think about it, this is sort of the uh, primordial information system, right? If you're living in a tribal community, you know, 80,000 years ago, uh, it's essential to have a shared understanding of the natural world. You have to know, you know, what snakes are poisonous. Uh, you know, what plants you can eat. And you have to have some kind... And that, that kind of information, you know, gets built up over time through a lot of trial and error, right? A lot of people eating the wrong plants or the wrong mushrooms or whatever. And, um, and that information gets preserved in a sort of cultural framework that gets passed on and gets actually embedded in the language. And over time, uh, these uh, classifications actually become more and more complex. And you start to see, you know, people start to actually create categories of, you know, noticing that, you know, there's maybe a category of things that fly, and there's a category of, you know, something like mammals and something like insects. And uh, those categories get more and more granular over time. Now, these are called folk taxonomies. And this is not to be confused with folksonomies, which some people might have heard of. I think that was maybe last year's buzzword. But uh, folk taxonomies are uh, basically uh, systems for categorizing information about plants and animals that are present actually in every human culture that's ever been studied, from Papua New Guinea to the outback of Australia to you know the tribes of you know Native America. Every culture seems to have a system like this, and. What's particularly interesting is that uh, these systems bear an incredible degree of resemblance to each other. They have certain characteristics that, even in cultures that, that evolved, that um, you know, that took shape, 
you know, physically, you know, on separate continents over tens of thousands of years, uh, folk taxonomies are almost identical. And this is kind of a pretty surprising thing if you consider how different a lot of these cultures are in other ways. But they all have certain characteristics. They almost invariably have a concept of sort of higher, you know, the highest order of life forms like plants and animals. They uh, have a concept of um, sort of a genus and a species and a subspecies. And uh, what's interesting about that is that that, that categorization, that's, that sort of hierarchy, is uh, invariable in every culture that's ever been studied. There's a guy named Brent, uh, anthropologist named Brent Berlin who's spent his whole life studying this. And every tribal society ever documented has a taxonomy of the natural world that's, about f- that's invariably five levels deep, has five levels of categorization. And the actual contents of it may vary slightly, but, but generally they're actually pretty similar. So it would seem to suggest that this might be an example of an epigenetic rule. Well, nobody's really studied that. Um, uh, anthropologists and bi- you know, social biologists haven't quite gotten, come to terms on this yet. So, but it seems to suggest there might be an epigenetic rule. So I actually, um, when I was writing the book, I wrote a note to Professor Wilson and I said, you know, what do you think? And uh, he said, I, I agree. I think, he said he, he thinks this is actually an example of, of an epigenetic rule at work. Um, for what it's worth, it's, again, it's, I can't really cite anything uh, you know, in the scientific literature to back that up, but it does seem like a pretty compelling uh, um, evidence that that might be you know, an example, that we might have a very uh, deep biological disposition to categorizing the world in, in hierarchical terms. Well, a folk taxonomy does not look like this. Right? Uh, this is an example of a folksonomy that I mentioned earlier, and this is the kind of thing I think you see a lot on the web these days, and so I'm fast-forwarding a little bit. Um, we, uh, I think a lot of people, when, they, you know, when we look at the phenomena of networked information, there, there's sort of this idea that hierarchies are going to f- kind of fall. The old sort of hierarchies of knowledge are kind of falling apart, and everything is very sort of networked and sort of loosey-goosey now. Um, but it would seem that, you know, that our, we do have this disposition towards categorizing the world in, hierarch- in, in a hierarchical way that, that's pretty deep-seated. This is probably going into a little more detail than we want to get into, but this is, uh, Berlin has developed kind of a model for how this, uh, for uh, what these folk taxonomies typically look like. An interesting question is, you know, why, why are they so similar, and where does that structure come from, this sort of five or six level uh, taxonomy, you know, come from? What is the sort of explanation for that? Well, uh, there was an anthropologist uh, named Emile Durkheim, who's uh, wrote a lot around the turn of the century, and he also studied folk taxonomies. And he, th- he believed, and a lot of people agree, that there's a relationship between folk taxonomies and uh, family trees. This takes a little explaining, but he believed that in, in cultures that don't have uh, any sort of uh, ability to record information, they don't, you know, cultures that don't have any alphabetic you know, writing technology, that they uh, use these folk taxonomies as a way of projecting their understanding of family relationships. And so it's, uh, it's very common in folk taxonomies for people to describe a particular animal as belonging to kind of a parent category or to have kind of family relationships. We do this all the time. We talk about our, our cousins, the chimpanzees, for instance. You know, the way that people use those sort of family terms, there's something about the way we relate to our, our own genealogy that is somehow bound up with our understanding of the natural world. Uh, here's another example of a, uh, a family tree. This is Charles Darwin's family tree. And here's another family tree. 
So this is a genealogy of the Greek gods. Now, what's interesting here is that uh, there is actually a relationship between this kind of mythology and, uh, and taxonomy. And this may take a little explaining, but uh, if you look at most mythologies in world cultures, every, uh, there are ways of explaining the natural world in addition to being uh, collections of stories that people tell. They also have kind of coded meanings. So every god kind of has a double. You know, they often have sort of animal... Um, uh, animals that they're associated with or natural elements, you know, Zeus is the god of thunder or, you know, what have you, or this one, you know, this goddess turns into a deer or, or whatever. And throughout human cultures, there are these kinds of um, connections between uh, taxonomies and mythologies. And that relationship actually goes pretty deep. So this was uh, this is a great book uh, by uh, Hobart and Schiffman. It's called Information Ages, and they talk about this a little bit. And they talk about how genealogy is actually an ideal way for people to classify the world, especially we're talking about preliterate societies here. It gives people a framework for um, sort of capturing what they know about the world around them and encoding it in these sort of, you know, uh, mythological um, related, you know, stories. And, and then that can be preserved uh, through generations by having this sort of genealogical structure around it. And so what you see in a lot of these cultures is that the mythology is... As I say, it's, it's really kind of an information system. It's a way of uh, categorizing information and containing a, a lot of information that's kind of cross-referenced in, uh, in interesting ways. And, and those systems, that kind of uh, taxonomy, often plays a pretty direct role in actually shaping uh, the way that people live together and the, the actual social structure uh, uh, that sort of, you know, that grows up around it. So this is a, a photo of a... Uh, uh, Zuni Pueblo. So the Zuni people uh, live in what's t- today, or live in what's today, uh, mostly New Mexico. And uh, it was interesting, when the Spanish conquistadors first encountered the Zuni, they noticed something very unusual about the way they, they, uh, they set up their villages, their pueblos. Uh, each pueblo was divided into quadrants, and each quadrant had a particular sort of family, a kind, of, kind of a clan within the larger tribe. And at each Pueblo, there was the exact same structure. So there was like, you know, they would have a you know, north, south, east, west, and then there'd be a group that lived in the middle. And uh, each of those groups had a particular name and a particular um, uh, sort of relation, set of relationships with the natural world. So you would have, for instance, the people in the north would have a particular association with like bears and, you know, a certain kind of snake and a certain kind of bird and certain elements of the weather. Uh, they might be associated with rain, you know, or wind or fire or what have you. And you would also have uh, particular sort of social uh, responsibilities divided up between these groups. So the people in the middle would be kind of the priest class, and the people on the, you know, on one side of town would basically be responsible for, uh, for keeping the peace, and the people on, you know, in another quadrant would be responsible for making war and would presumably sort of sit around and watch Fox News. So you had, you know, you had kind of a, uh, a division of social responsibility that was uh, very much tied up in this, uh, you know, in this kind of taxonomy, this sort of understanding of the natural world. Another example, uh, in the outback of Australia, they discovered very, a very similar sort of setup uh, where a lot of the uh, tribes in the, in the outback would, of the uh, Aboriginal people would have a similar sort of uh, division of clans within the larger tribal group. 
and they would have certain sort of dietary restrictions, like this group, you know, this particular clan would only eat kangaroo, and this one would only eat emus, and uh, and they would also be sort of charged with having a particular sort of domain of expertise uh, about you know particular animals and particular natural elements. So again, it's the idea is that the you know in these sort of preliterate societies, there's a fairly deep relationship between uh, taxonomies and social organization, and so and and this is something. You know, even this is something that uh, a pattern that over time has uh, has continued to play out as we've seen that the relationship between information systems and social organization goes pretty far back, and, and there's always been a fairly um, direct relationship between the way people organize information and the way they actually organize themselves. So, so and today, you know, we still organize things into hierarchies. Right? Uh, this is a site map from a from a website. And it seems to have, you know, a lot, if you see these things, a lot of them seem to echo this kind of structure where you have this kind of hierarchical organization that kind of somehow looks a little bit like a family tree. And people often who do websites often talk about pages on a website having like a parent-child relationship to each other, which is, you know, kind of an echo of a, a like a folk taxonomy or, you know, that kind of thinking. So it seems to be based on some sort of, uh, uh, there seems to be some deep, you know, uh, propensity that we have for organizing information in a, in a certain way. So, uh, so just to bring things forward a little bit, so, so folk taxonomies were really kind of the, uh, as I said, a, a kind of basic way of organizing information for most of our species history. And I think they're, they're very, actually not uh, studied all that often. And I think they probably should be because we're, you know, uh, for at least probably 80 to 90,000 years, they were kind of the dominant way that people organized information was in these sort of mythological taxonomic systems that were basically transmitted orally, you know, through culture. Um, what happened about, just to fast forward now, uh, to about 30,000 years ago, uh, so for, for most of our species history, people didn't really have symbolic uh, artifacts. They didn't really communicate using uh, external um, symbols or objects. Uh, what happened about 30,000 years ago, and this is kind of a, a hallmark of evolution, is that uh, adaptations tend to uh, happen when there's a change in the environment or change, changing conditions. And what happened about 30,000 years ago was the last great European ice age. And what happened about that time was suddenly across uh, much of the, you know, parts of the, you know, much of the world that was populated by humans, uh, suddenly temperatures started to plunge, and the small game that people had been used to relying on, I mean, for most of our, spe you know, our species history, people have been sort of small game hunters, eating sort of squirrels and rabbits and pigeons and, and living in very sort of loose-knit uh, sort of scavenger groups. Uh, what happened about 30,000 years ago as the Ice Age came was that that small game started to dry up and a lot of the vegetation started to disappear. And people suddenly, it was colder out, they had to start basically banding together to survive. They were you know, starting to live in caves, for instance. And the, the, uh, the food supply, uh, increasingly, again, they weren't able to find the, the, the ready food supply that they had been able to, 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 uh, to find. They started to hunt big game, like woolly mammoths and big you know, eight-foot-tall prehistoric cows. And uh, they uh, started to realize that they actually needed to collaborate to do that. You know, sort of anybody can, can kill a pigeon, but if you're going to bring down a woolly mammoth, you actually have to have sort of a team, and, uh, and you had a larger organization, you know, a larger um, sort of group of people living together in, in sort of increasingly growing settlements. So what happened as people were starting to live in these larger settlements, 
It was about this time that they actually started to create things like beads in, in, in huge numbers. This was also about the time they started making cave paintings. And it seems that this, uh, this activity was actually a response to changing environmental conditions, where people suddenly had to uh, sort of relate to each other in ways that they hadn't had to before. So when people were in sort of loose-knit organizations or loose-knit groups, you sort of knew who everybody was. You know, you, might, you, know, you knew who your sister was, and you knew you know, so, so-and-so had this sort of status in, in, the, you know, in the group. But you're suddenly in a larger organization, in a larger group of maybe hundreds of people living together. Um, it's not so easy to keep track of who's who. So there's a, a pretty compelling theory that a lot of this early um, symbolism was a response to that, uh, to that need to uh, be able to communicate status or to be able to negotiate relationships with people that you didn't necessarily know. Uh, and so it's incredible. If you look at the uh, archaeological uh, data around this period, there were settlements where people apparently spent the bulk of their lives creating, these, creating beads and ornaments. Uh, maybe they just had a lot of time on their hands because you know it was cold outside and they were you know they were spending a lot of time inside. But but it was obviously incredibly important to these people for some reason that they'd be able to create these uh, these sort of totemic objects. And what this did was it facilitated what uh, has been called a release from social proximity. So as I said, what the, as people were able to basically in, um, use object use symbolic objects to communicate their status to each other. Uh, they were able to uh, uh, to get beyond the you know the uh, the need to have direct personal knowledge of, of who everybody was. They could actually have sort of uh, you know mediated uh, uh, relationships with people. You could sort of tell you know what status somebody had and who you know who was who, who was married, that sort of thing. And uh, what's interesting about this is it uh, it created a. Uh, an opportunity as people were able to, to negotiate those relationships uh, and people came together in these sort of networks as, as you know, large numbers of people started living together, new kinds of social hierarchies emerged out of that. So uh, it was around this time that we saw the first, what we would recognize as kind of tribal chiefdoms. So you started to see a real sort of uh, social hierarchy take shape around, uh, around and it really as a, res- as a result of, or at least partly as a result of uh, this information technology that allowed people to, uh, you know, to, to facilitate these kinds of relationships. So it's interesting to, to look at that relationship between sort of a new uh, and kind of, in a way, disruptive information technology and, uh, and a wave of social change that seemed to happen in, in response to it. And I think it's interesting also to think about this notion of uh, a release from proximity and what that, you know, and, and how we actually do the same thing today. Um, these are just a few examples of how we do that today, right? Uh, so I think like eBay seller ratings are a great example of this. How you're actually able to negotiate a relationship with somebody you've never met using a kind of symbolic uh, totem that tells you something about this person you'll, you'll never meet, and yet you, you sort of rely on that, right? So I think there's just sort of a, maybe some you know some parallel there. So uh, so to fast forward another few thousand years, um, uh, so this notion that you know that uh, of information technology emerging as a as a response to changing environmental conditions is is a theme that that seems to to recur at different periods in history. Uh, uh, this ha- seemed to happen again about five thousand years ago, when the first uh, uh, alphabets emerged. So uh, it was about five thousand years ago that people started to live together in larger agricultural settlements. 
So as, as the technology of agriculture uh, took shape, you saw larger and larger um, sort of stable settlements um, starting to emerge, and people were living together in yet larger organizations. And as a result of that, a lot of commerce started to happen. People were trading... Oops. Back up. Sorry. There we go. Um, people were trading with each other, and as they started to trade more, and there were more and more people, and there was a more, more of a sort of volume of activity going on, uh, they needed to keep track of that. And so the very earliest forms of writing were actually a form of counting. They actually emerged as sort of counting tokens. Uh, I think Samuel Johnson once said that uh, no man but a fool ever wrote except for money. Well, he was, he was actually quite right. There, there actually would not be writing if it wasn't for money. And, uh, and this was one of the first examples of that. Uh, over time, those uh, counting objects got a little more sophisticated. And as there was a growing volume of uh, transactions, people needed to do more than just count. They actually needed to start making lists of things. And so the first sort of alphabetic writing really emerged as sort of lists of you know, inventory or lists of goods. Um, and that, in turn, uh, you know, sort of yielded even more co- you know, sort of uh, complex sorts of accounting and record keeping. The first uh, sort of government bureaucracies emerged to sort of keep track. And I'm condensing a very, very long story here. But uh, over time, the, uh, you know, the, the modern sort of institution, as we would recognize it, the modern sort of bureaucratic institution took shape around the technology of writing. And eventually, you know, that writing became more like what we would recognize as writing today. It started to become more narrative. Uh, people started to, uh, tell, you know, to keep track of chronicles or stories about the king or, and then stories about the kingdom. And then eventually you know, somebody wrote Gilgamesh and then eventually you know, it became kind of literature. But during this period, there was uh, the emergence of, uh, of a sort of class of literate people. As this technology took shape, a kind of social division took, shape, uh, took hold, where you started to see uh, a, a small group of people who had, the, who had acquired the uh, capacity for reading and writing, and they became kind of a privileged caste, a caste of uh, scribes, which were, you know, the scribe was considered in Babylon and Sumeria to, to have a status kind of second only to the king. And... Uh, and a sort of literate culture started to emerge. And for you know, most of human history that ensued, there was always kind of a, a fairly small uh, um, sort of upper caste of people who actually knew how to read. And the vast majority of people still continued to uh, live in an oral culture. And, uh, and this relationship between kind of literate culture and oral culture is also a theme that I, uh, that, that, that I explore in the book quite a bit um, because I think it's, it's very relevant to, uh, to some of the sort of uh, conflicts that we're seeing today, some of the cultural transitions that we're seeing today. Uh, this is a, a guy named Walter J. Ong, who uh, is, uh, actually, he's passed away. Uh, he was a linguist, and he uh, has written a lot about oral culture and, and how, we sh- you know, how to understand them. And I think it's something that oral cultures are actually not very well uh, understood and not widely studied for some reason, I think because we have a kind of a cultural bias towards literacy because we're, we live in a literate culture. Um, but he makes the point that to really understand uh, it, it, context for this is he, he believes that uh, electronic media, especially uh, communications through computers and television and you know, the growing wave of electronic media, he, he thought represented actually the resurgence of oral culture. And that to really understand what's going on, we have to actually understand it through the filter of oral culture and not just through 
our uh, sort of traditional literate, you know, literary culture. And so uh, what he suggests is that there are certain characteristics of oral culture that it's, as he says here, additive and aggregative and participatory, meaning that it grows up over time through uh, large numbers of people sort of um, you know, pooling their experiences that over time a sort of you know, folk wisdom emerges or people, you know, over time that oral cultures create, uh, create an understanding that's, uh, that's an aggregate understanding. Whereas literate culture tends to be much more predicated on kind of the individual really um, you know, trying to take sort of an objective stance and really sort of digging into something and being analytic and, uh, and sort of abstracting from the situation. And that they're very different modes of thought and that they're modes of thought that, that kind of can coexist, but they, they often uh, sort of come into conflict with each other. And so it's interesting to think about oral culture in, in the context of, uh, of what, we, what we're seeing today, I think on the, especially on the, on the web. Um, in a way, I think you could say we're seeing actually uh, a very oral culture taking shape. If you look at the way that people use things like email, you know, instant messaging, you know, Twittering, blogging has a very conversational kind of tone to it. Uh, and this is an example of uh, a review on Amazon, for example, where uh, you know, a lot of people are able to you know, go in and basically post their own comments or their own reviews. And yet this sort of, uh, uh, you know, this sort of uh, experience coexists with a much more literate experience where you, you, you'll often have kind of the editorial review of a book, like the uh, you know, library journal review or something, and then you'll have a long list, or sometimes a long list, of, uh, of reader reviews. And the reader reviews, again, they sort of build up over time, and they, you know, you see, get sort of an average rating, so they get kind of aggregated, uh, whereas the, the editorial review kind of stands alone is considered a little more authoritative. So I think it's an interesting example of how those sort of oral and literate cultures continue to, to coexist, but don't quite come together. You know. So... Um, so just to back, back up to where we were. Um, so as these uh, uh, literate cultures started to emerge, you started to see the... Uh, can you see that? You started to see the first sort of institutional bureaus emerge to support uh, the, the preservation and the, um, you know, and the dissemination of, of recorded information. So you saw the first libraries emerge and... Uh, the, the first libraries were typically kind of temple libraries or government archives. And then over time, they um, uh, got bigger and bigger. And there were, the, for instance, the famous library at Alexandria. You saw these sort of institutional hierarchies emerging uh, to, take, to sort of take uh, custody of this growing body of, of recorded knowledge. And, uh, and there, were, you know, there were ups and downs. I mean, you saw, you know, the, we saw the great classical period, and then that sort of collapsed, and there was a period of, uh, of uh, sort of instability, uh, and then eventually the, uh, you know, a new, you know, sort of new kinds of uh, libraries and archival institutions emerged uh, in the Middle Ages in Europe. So, I'm making, again, making very, very long story short here. But it's interesting to look at, as that sort of back and forth happened, you saw uh, evolutions in the technology of writing. So, in the early, uh, in the early classical period, you went from sort of having a, a writing inscribed in stone tablets and on papyrus scrolls to eventually you saw the emergence of what we would think of as a book. And uh, that really uh, took shape uh, mostly in Europe in the, you know, the, the sort of what's called a codex book, which means a book with kind of pages that you can flip through, uh, took shape in Europe uh, sort of during the Dark Ages and into the medieval era. And during that period, you actually saw some interesting innovations in the actual content of the, uh, you know, of the uh, 
of the books themselves. So if you think about uh, a scroll, it's a very linear kind of way of reading. I mean, it has it's sort of a scroll is typically kind of one page, and you read it from the top to the bottom. Um, if you think about a book, it's more of kind of a random access thing, where you can you know go into any page and read it, and uh, jump around, and you know there it's it's sort of an it's a it's an innovation. It's uh, it's a it's a new way of of, uh, of organizing information. And during the medieval period, there were some really interesting innovations that took shape. This is a uh, example of a canon table. Uh, this was done in one of the, uh, I think, one of the uh, Irish monasteries, I think. And this is a, a kind of a, a hypertext-like view of, uh, of the Bible. And so what this does is it basically is kind of a visual index to books of the Bible. So it basically takes like a story in the Bible and it cross-references across all the different Gospels. And the idea here is that, you know, the person who created this was able to kind of zoom out from the Bible and uh, create this kind of view into it that had this, that had this kind of, high, you know, this sort of uh, conceptual hierarchy that, uh, that let you kind of, you know, extract, you know, zoom in and zoom out of the, uh, of the text. There's some other interesting, uh, oops, examples. This is an example of a medieval bestiary. Um, and I wanted to bring this up because I think this is also a really interesting example of where oral and literate cultures come together. Uh, the Bestiary was an extremely popular book in medieval Europe. And uh, it was a book, basically it's a book about animals. And uh, they're, kind, they're often kind of picture books. They, it was based on uh, an old Greek text, but uh, it was sort of uh, added to over time. Over about a thousand years, it was, it, the, the stories kind of evolved. And each of the stories about the animals uh, was eventually sort of layered on with some sort of allegorical significance. So, for instance, uh, you know, there was a story about the elephant who had no knees, and the elephant had no knees because it was kind of like a pillar of faith or something like that. And uh, there's a story about the lion, and the lion was considered to be a representative of Jesus. And so, uh, for instance, if people have read like the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's where that image comes from of the lion as, as Jesus, it dates all the way back to, to this book. Um, so I think that what's interesting about this, I think you can see some echoes of some interesting things here. So uh, you'll notice that in this, at least in this image, Adam is kind of classifying the animals. So he's kind of putting them into categories. And, uh, and that whole notion of Adam naming the animals is sort of somehow kind of an echo of that, that basic human uh, instinct to, to categorize the natural world. What's also interesting is that this, uh, the bestiary was incredibly popular among uh, medieval people who couldn't read. And often... Uh, often a parish church in, uh, in Europe would only have two books. They would have a copy of the Bible, and they would have a bestiary. And the people, the villagers or you know, peasants, would love to come and hear stories told to them out of the bestiary uh, because it was a very, you know, they were very visual, and they sort of somehow resonated with this uh, sort of deep interest that people had in animals and, uh, and understanding the natural world. And it was a way to sort of connect that, that sort of folk uh, tradition with this, uh, you know, with this... Um, you know, uh, religious uh, meaning, and uh, somehow it was a way of bringing together that sort of oral, you know, sort of an, an oral culture with a kind of literate culture. And even if you go into churches around this time, they often have uh, images that are right out of the bestiary all over the walls. Like they'll have images of, uh, you know, of lions and different animals that are directly tied to the uh, to the images that are in the bestiary. So, um, so also during this period. Uh, around the, the sort of late Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance, uh, in the medieval monasteries, they were, you know, we sort of uh, 
tend to think of them as being, a lot of the monasteries as being uh, sort of centers of uh, book production or scholarship, which they were. But there was also an interesting technique that was being developed in the monasteries about this time. It was called the art of memory. And the art of memory was a particular uh, technique that was taught uh, in certain monasteries that enabled uh, monks to uh, memorize incredible amounts of information. Uh, by some accounts, people who mastered this technique could actually memorize uh, something like two, up to 200,000 pages of information. There were people who claimed to have memorized the whole Bible, uh, you know, every point of like the canon law, all kinds of legal documents. I mean, they apparently performed these incredible feats of memorization. And the way they did that was by doing these complex visualizations. And the, uh, you know, it's, uh, a lot of the technique has been lost, but from what we understand, the way they did it was they would create these uh, kind of memory palaces that they would visualize. And they would use, uh, and within each palace, there'd be a series of rooms. And within each room, there would be a set of objects that would have a particular meaning that they would uh, memorize. And then somehow those objects would then be strung together into... Uh, you know, into words and text that could be memorized. It was a you know, very involved technique. It took years and years and decades to, to master. But what was interesting about it is that um, it somehow invoked uh, kind of spatial memory in a way that uh, you know, we think of memorizing as just sort of memorizing sort of maybe rows and rows of text, but it was a very different way, a kind of three-dimensional way of invoking memory. And people, some scholars have suggested that maybe there's kind of a, an echo of kind of a hypertext kind of idea here where if you think about... Um, the way people sort of navigate uh, interactive information spaces, that it's also kind of a 3D kind of experience and uses that kind of spatial memory. Uh, and there was even a guy named, uh, a guy who actually tried to build kind of a, a physical facsimile of the, the art of memory, uh, a guy named Camillo, who built a thing called the Theater of Memory. And it was this uh, incredibly popular attraction in Venice uh, in the uh, 16th century, I think, where he basically built this this big contraption, and it was kind of like uh, it was kind of like a big mechanical web browser. The idea was anybody could uh, walk into this thing. And apparently, it was kind of a, a big theater, and you would walk in, and there would be all these little windows, like wooden boxes with windows, and you could go in, and you could open up a window, and it would have something written inside, and then you could, that window would then tell you to go, and you could cross-reference that to some other window. So the idea was that somebody could go in and sort of extract information out of this thing. And he claimed that anybody who walked inside would come out and be as, uh, as, as smart as Cicero or something. And uh, he had a whole kind of sales pitch, and he actually raised money from the king, kind of like venture capital to build this thing. And, uh, and uh, then he went bankrupt, and all the money disappeared. <laughs> but um, a familiar story, maybe, for some of us. But um, anyway, it's just an interesting sort of side note. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because I know we want to leave some time for questions. Um, uh, I'm actually going to skip through a little bit here. And um, so I wanted to talk, bring us a little bit closer to the present day and uh, talk a little bit about uh, the effects of industrialization on information systems. So again, I'm trying to... The, so the, we've seen in a few different periods of history where we've, uh, we've seen a... Uh, you know, changing environmental conditions have given rise to some kind of new technology that has then changed the way that people exchange information with each other. And as a result, we've also seen sort of social change sort of tied to that phenomena. Well, that all started to happen again about the beginning of the 19th century. And this was, excuse me, um, during the Industrial Revolution, 
we saw a, uh, a period of uh, a real explosion of published information. And even though the printing press was invented uh, in, the, uh, you know, in the 15th century, and I I've sort of skipped over that, that little development. Um, the, uh, uh, the real boom in printing was, really didn't happen until the 19th century, and this is not particularly well understood. I mean, there was, of course, a boom in printing after the, the printing press, but it was still, uh, for the couple of hundred years that followed, it's still a relatively tiny subset of people really had any, had any number of books. Uh, there were a few popular books, like the uh, devotional books that a few people had, but uh, by and large, it really wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that reading and the production of books became a really common um, thing. So, and so there were a couple of uh, trends at work there. One was that you had this uh, the tech, industrial technology and made it much cheaper to produce books and to produce them in mass quantities. And uh, at the same time, as a result of industrialization, you saw a, a, growing urban popula- a growing urban population that was increasingly literate. And so there was a growing demand and a, a growing um, you know, potential supply of books. And so it was really in the 19th century that there was this, this huge uh, proliferation of, of texts. And, uh, you know, popular novels, you know, emerged during this period and, uh, you know, dictionaries and encyclopedias. And there was, you know, this incredible... Um, uh, you know, incredible burst of, of publishing activity. And it was also during this time that the first uh, sort of modern libraries emerged. And it was sort of in response to this, uh, this proliferation of books that you started to see really the first great kind of national libraries, like the British Library, the Library of Congress, um, you know, and, and eventually you started to see public libraries take shape. Before that, before the Industrial Revolution, libraries were almost all private, there were a few sort of private subscription libraries. There were some university libraries, of course. But uh, typically, even the big university libraries, they didn't really need a, a catalog particularly because they weren't much bigger than a room. And they would often have uh, somebody who was called a professor of books whose job it was to basically know everything that was in the, co- in the collection. Uh, so if you needed a book, you needed to know what to read, or you're researching a topic, you talk to the professor of books, and they would basically steer you in the right direction. Well... In the 19th century, uh, that just became untenable. There was a huge number of books, and people needed to figure out a way to keep track of them. And so a new kind of uh, institutional hierarchy emerged, which is what we would think of today as the, well, what was the the library catalog. And you started to see, uh, in about the mid-19th century, the British Library uh, created the first sort of what we would recognize as a a modern library catalog with, like, subject headings and kind of a hierarchy of... uh, of understanding about of, of, of topics and subjects, uh, and then eventually uh, uh, in America, uh, Melville Dewey, who I'm sure everybody's heard of, created the Dewey Decimal System, which we're still stuck with today, um, and uh, and you start to see this very sort of systematized approach to organizing information that, in a lot of ways, uh, is really a, a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. Really, the modern library catalog is a very industrial artifact. And it's one that's um, increasingly sort of an, uh, anachronistic, I think, in a, in a, in a sort of post-industrial world. And there's been a lot of pressure on libraries to sort of rethink the way that they, they organize information. But there were people who were thinking about this problem quite a while ago. Uh, so there's a guy named Charles Cutter who was actually uh, not as well known as Melville Dewey, but at the time he was actually Dewey's sort of great rival. Uh, he created uh, an alternative library catalog system that is actually the one the Library of Congress uses today, more, more or less. And he wrote this essay in 1883, 
And he, it was an essay about what he thought a library might look like in 100 years. So it's called the Buffalo Public Library of uh, 1983. And he has this notion that uh, there might be desks with keyboards on them with little wires coming out of them and that people might be able to type in a name of a book and get a picture of the book to appear on a screen and uh, that it would just sort of pop up somehow. So it was pr pretty good, right? Um, so, uh, and, you know, in the years that followed, a few other people started to sort of have these kinds of ideas. H.G. Uh, Wells wrote a pretty well-known essay called World Brain, where he also had this idea that somehow that there could be something like a computer that was somehow connected to something like a network and that over time people would be able to exchange information uh, using these tools. And he had this idea that uh, eventually, he, saw it, he actually saw it as kind of an, a big encyclopedia and that uh, eventually he thought the whole thing would sort of wake up and sort of somehow, he didn't really explain how, and, uh, and that it would become a kind of living organism in some, some way. So interesting. I think this, this actually kind of echoes uh, a couple of those um, quotes we looked at at the beginning of the presentation, this notion of sort of an emerging intelligence uh, coming out of the network is something that, you know, it's, got, it's an idea that's been around for a little while. There's another guy named uh, Teilhard de Chardin, who was a, uh, uh, a Jesuit, uh, um, who started writing some essays around the, uh, I think, 1940s, 50s maybe, and he also, he was kind of a bit of a mystic, but he also had this idea that, uh, that electronic communications technology would eventually give rise to new ways of organizing information, and, and that this would all sort of happen in a network, and that as part of that, it would be a very revolutionary thing that would happen, um, and there would be a new way of sort of interfacing with the, with the world. Um, de Chardin was actually considered very controversial. The Catholic Church actually barred him from publishing any of his writing. They considered it heretical. Uh, because they thought that he was actually suggesting that it would this sort of kind of divine consciousness would somehow emerge, so they considered it very um, off message, I guess. And um, <laughs> so, uh, but nonetheless, he actually had kind of a, a cult following. And uh, there was one young Jesuit who became a particular uh, devotee of his, uh, whose name was Marshall McLuhan, who actually credited de Chardin as the, as the direct uh, inspiration for his whole idea of the global village. So. Um, so anyway, so, so we could see there was this sort of heritage of thought uh, for, you know, at least several decades after the Industrial Revolution that something different could come along. There could be some new way of organizing information. But, no, but none of these people really built anything uh, along, you know, like that until a guy named Paul Outley came along. And I'm guessing probably most people have probably never heard of him. Uh, he is kind of a forgotten figure, but a, a pretty fascinating guy. He's a French uh, librarian, or Belgian, sorry, librarian, who uh, in the early part of the 20th century wrote some really pretty important books, uh, which mostly have not been translated, uh, about sort of information theory. And he had this idea that, uh, that library, librarians basically had it all wrong, that they were too fixated on... Uh, the idea of a book, and that they were they were spending all their time worrying about how to get people to to find a particular book, but his his insight was that there was actually a lot of information inside those books, and that if that information could actually be sort of liberated, you could actually create a whole different way of uh, 
of organizing that information and of people, letting people find their own way through that information. So uh, he also has, he, so he wrote a lot. He also drew these great little diagrams. Um, I like this when people have little lucky charms popping out of their heads or something. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, this sort of illustrates this idea pretty well, I think. The idea is that you, know, you have ideas and then this, that gets stored on books, but if you can actually extract that data out of the books and file them in some way, you could actually create uh, a whole new interface. And he had this idea, and I won't go into the details of it, but he developed a very detailed system for, uh, uh, for how that would work. He had a, a, a very uh, forward-thinking kind of classification system that he, that he sketched out, but his, his other insight was that the people who were actually reading the information or, or interacting with the information could actually be part of that process of organizing it. And so uh, his idea was that as somebody came in and actually pulled out a piece of information or annotated it, that would actually become part of the record of that piece of information. And those sort of trails through the... Uh, you know, through the, the documents would actually become, become a new kind of document in a way, and that that itself would, would take on its shades of meaning. Uh, so there's a little, I'm going to play a little snippet of a documentary that was made about him a few years ago. Um, 1934, Otley publishes his most important book, The Treatise on Documentation, the book on the book. This is where we find the most visionary pages where already the concept of the computer emerges. Here, the workspace is no longer cluttered with any books. In their place, a screen and a telephone within reach. Over there, in an immense edifice, are all the books and information. From there, the page to be read, in order to know the answer to the question asked by telephone, is made to appear on the screen. A screen could be divided in half, by four, or even by ten, if multiple texts and documents had to be consulted simultaneously. There would be a loudspeaker if the image had to be complemented by oral data, and this improvement could continue to the point of automating the call for on-screen data. Cinema, phonographs, radio, Television, these instruments taken as substitutes for the book will in fact become the new book. The most powerful works for the diffusion of human thought. This will be the radiated library and the televised book. Right. So why has nobody ever heard of this guy, right? It's like, right? It's a, well, he's Belgian, right? No, well, it's... I'll, I'll tell you why nobody's heard of him. Um, he actually built this thing. He actually built uh, this uh, whole um, thing called the Mundaneum uh, in the 1930s. And it was actually quite popular and very successful. And he had people phoning in research requests from all over the world. And he had a staff of people that were going through and organizing this information and writing it down on cards. And he had, you know, rooms and rooms full of this, all this information. Uh, and had this incredible thing figured out and had it actually up and running and working. And then um, the Nazis came. And they marched in and they tore the whole thing down. Uh, they emptied out the Mundaneum to make room for an exhibit of Third Reich art. And uh, they threw everything away. And he died a broken man in total obscurity a few years later in the middle of the war. And uh, was essentially forgotten for about 30 years. Uh, until a guy named, uh, a professor uh, at UC Berkeley, actually, a guy named uh, Boyd Rayward, uh, actually, I'm uh, no, sorry, Michael Buckland, and Boyd Rayward is in uh, New Zealand. Uh, they're two scholars who um, sort of have resurrected his reputation a little bit and have actually been going through and trying to uh, 
they've written some articles and tried to sort of, um, you know, resuscitate uh, some of his work a little bit and doing some translating. They're actually rebuilding, they have actually rebuilt uh, part of the Monday Dam in Belgium, and it's become a bit of a, a tourist attraction there, but, but he's still certainly better known there than he is here. But, but certainly, you know, he was a pretty visionary guy. And he was around long before uh, uh, Vannevar Bush, who was typically credited as the sort of forefather of the web, and, and, and rightly so. Um, a couple things about Bush. Uh, first, his first name is pronounced Vannevar, I found out. Um, and he is no relation to the current occupant of uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and uh, I'm sure probably quite a few people know, know something about Bush. He's certainly uh, probably best known for an essay he wrote uh, he actually wrote it in the 30s, but it was published in 1945, uh, called As We May Think. And in that essay, he uh, postulated this idea of something called a memex. And uh, it's, it's often, it's generally uh, credited as the, the sort of, there's, there's a direct lineage from this to the World Wide Web, sort of conceptually. There's a, tra- a sort of progression of people who took this vision and worked with it and uh, came up with what we have today. So the memex, just, I'll talk about it just very briefly. Um, it's, the idea of it was that it was a, uh, a tool for a scholar to basically be able to sift through a large collection of documents that would be stored on microfilm and then to annotate those documents. And Bush's idea was that um, as, they went, as they did that, they would, and it was similar to Altley in this respect, that they would uh, annotate, that those annotations would actually become part of the sort of paper trail, so to speak, and uh, would, become, would take on their own meaning over time. So he had this idea that as a result of that, you know, you would see these new forms of what he called encyclopedias emerge um, that would then, uh, you know, um, be, you know be, take on sort of a life of their own. So um, the key, you know, the key sort of features of the memex is that it relied on users to make associations between documents rather than, this is where it was different from Altley's vision. Altley thought there would also be sort of a... Uh, a, cl- a classification system on, sort of from the top down, uh, Bush thought that the users would do all the work and basically they would just create their own networks of meaning through these, through these documents. Uh, he also, and it's interesting to think about how the memics in some ways is actually superior to the web, uh, all of the links would, be, would work both ways, so you'd be able to see where something came from. You know, if you were looking at something, you'd see what pointed into it, and that the pathways between documents would actually be visible, so you could actually see, if you could actually follow somebody's trail through a, through a collection of documents. So those are things that are just fundamentally aren't, aren't kind of workable in the, the web as we understand it today, but it was, they're pretty compelling ideas. Um, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit here, too, for the sake of time. A couple of other folks that I think are worth just mentioning, and I won't go into too much detail, but uh, as kind of, uh, you know, forefathers of, of the web. Or for, um, Eugene Garfield was the guy who uh, uh, was basically responsible for the idea of what's, what we now, what Google has now calls PageRank, uh, and had this idea that you could actually... Uh, well, not worth going into the details, but he basically invented the algorithm that, that essentially that Google uses back in the 1950s. Um, Doug Engelbart, also a hugely important figure. Uh, he um, built really the first working online. He's often just known as the inventor of the mouse, but he actually built the first really working hypertext system uh, in the 1960s. And Xerox Park is very well known. A lot of Engelbart disciples uh, sort of were responsible for for building Xerox Park, which I think around here I probably don't have to say too much about, but was certainly hugely uh, influential in developing the vision of the personal computer and things like Ethernet and so forth. 
And finally, one guy I do want to just talk about for a minute, uh, Ted Nelson, who um, really, if it wasn't for Ted Nelson, uh, uh, a lot of us, certainly in the city, would probably be doing something else uh, for a living. He uh, is probably you know, directly responsible for the existence of the web, or at least Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the web, says so, uh, says that Ted Nelson was actually his inspiration for, for the web. He's an a interesting character, a bit, um, he's always been a bit of an outsider. And uh, he, in the 1970s, started writing some really visionary uh, books about computers, and he, he actually invented the term hypertext, and uh, he always had this kind of outsider mentality, you know, computer lib, you know, sort of playing like women's lib, that sort of thing, and uh, he believed that the whole computer industry was kind of a, a cabal of, uh, of corporations that were sort of driven by, you know, government and big company um, priorities, and he, he had a very different vision of what computers could be and how they could work, and how they could really be tools for individual uh, you know, individual use and individual sort of creativity. And uh, he had this idea that there could be sort of networks of computers that would uh, allow people to collaborate and to, uh, you know, to create new kinds of documents and engage, engage with each other. And um, he, uh, you know, again, wrote a lot of visionary things. He spent a good part of his career trying to actually build this, a, a sort of uh, almost mythical project called Xanadu that for a long list of reasons has never quite come to fruition. But... Um, Reading his work is really pretty fascinating. I mean, the guy is is a, a, a genius. He's, he's also about half crazy, um, but he's, his his work is really fascinating. He comes up with all these uh, just fascinating terms, uh, which I don't have time to go through all these. But uh, some of these ideas are just really uh, incredibly insightful. I'll mention a couple of them. Uh, the notion of transclusion is the idea that you could, rather than just have a link between documents, you could actually include part of a document in another document and have it update, update uh, in real time. Uh, and actually, be, they could be sort of a live connection between documents and they could sort of like see through each other in some way. Um, you also had ideas like uh, grand systems, which are kind of uh, big sort of meta collections of documents that are operate in a somewhat different way from sort of lower level pieces of information. So I don't have time to go into all of this, but he uh, deserves to be more read. Unfortunately, I found out recently uh, they've tried to put together an anthology of his writings, and they can't find a publisher, which I think is just kind of shocking. Uh, but he, you know, he certainly his, his work is, is a little hard to get through because he's a very colorful writing style. But he's really, uh, really brilliant. There's some really worthwhile ideas that I think have been sort of uh, left by the wayside uh, in the web in its current state. So, speaking of the web, this is what Ted Nelson has to say about it. Um, he doesn't doesn't think much of it. <laughs> <laughs> but it may just be sour grapes. But, um, but I think it is worth, you know, uh, I think one of the great sort of benefits of going back and looking at some of these earlier systems is that we can see that, you know, that things could have turned out differently. And, uh, you know, we tend to, I think the web has become such a uh, dominant cultural force that we tend to sort of take it for, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to think about how things could be different. But in a way, it's actually very limited uh, compared to the vision of what some of these early forebears had. And there, there are a lot of the sort of fundamental problems of the web were actually anticipated and even solved by some of these earlier systems. I think there is value in actually going and taking a look back at, uh, at some of the systems that came before for ideas that, that, uh, you know, that might help us find a way forward. So. Which um, sort of brings us up to where we are now. This is a... Uh, uh, screenshot of one of the first uh, images of the, of the web on Tim Berners-Lee's uh, machine, and that was actually a picture I took. His machine was on display in the Louvre uh, a few years ago. That was the next machine where he actually uh, invented the World Wide Web. 
So, uh, so we're going to be running out of time soon. So I wanted to just close by trying to connect the dots a little bit. I know I've, I've covered a lot of ground here, and um, you know, my book does sort of go into a lot of different topics. And um, I've tried to at least find a few themes that seem to, uh, to recur over time. Well, the book is really a history book, and it tries to really just go into you know, different periods in, in, you know, in the history of information systems and look for interesting examples or anecdotes of, of you know, ways that people have organized information over the years. But along the way, I, I have tried to look for uh, some patterns that, that might help us um, to frame you know, what's going on today or to understand uh, some of the challenges we're dealing with today and by taking kind of a long-term uh, view. So I wanted to close just by reading actually the conclusion of the book, uh, which I hope will maybe sort of make some sense of this. Um, so it goes like this. So for most of our species history, human beings have interacted in small, tightly woven communities, families, villages, guilds, and other social groups whose members were bound by ties of direct kinship or close personal affiliation. Only in the past few thousand years have people allowed themselves to be governed by institutional bodies. On the scale of evolutionary history, institutions remain a short-lived hypothesis. Yet for tens of thousands of years, human beings have interacted as social animals, following unwritten norms, strengthened by kinship, reinforced by the limbic responses that strengthen our personal relationships, and transmitted through the spoken word. Today, we're seeing those instincts return to the fore as people adapt new technologies to invoke the ancient emotional circuitry that carried us through the age before symbols. The future of memory may lie not in our heads, but in our hearts. So, so that's it. Thank you. Thank you. You're not just a writer. You're a designer. You're an information architect. Something I never quite know what to call myself. Something like that. So I'm interested in, in a little bit of the byplay between this body of material and your own design work. Mm-hmm. I assume you were a designer before you were a researcher in this area? Um, it's hard to say. It's like, yeah. In any case, as you bring your own design sensibility into mm-hmm. looking at all these various systems, mm-hmm. what lit up for you because of that? Well, I think one thing that was interesting to me was this whole question of uh, hierarchy and... Um, you know, whether that's something to be abandoned or not. I mean, I think as a designer, especially working with things like the web, you, you're always up against this question of how much do you structure things and how much do you try to keep it flat and loose and, uh, and sort of let it sort of self-organize. And, uh, you know, what was interesting to me was looking at that sort of heritage of, of hierarchical systems and is there, you know, does there seem to be some, uh, you know, I think hierarchy, hierarchies tend to get kind of a bad reputation as being sort of the... Uh, you know, the artifact of sort of institutional hierarchies, but there are actually other kinds of hierarchies that maybe have, uh, have some utility for us. So. Well, how about in the other direction? As a designer, you know, what from all of this do you take to the New York Times when you're uh, being an information yeah, architect? Still then? figuring that out. But, uh, um, well, I think, what, you know, one thing that's coming up a, a lot at the Times is this whole uh, question about what's the role of the reader and, or the, you know, the user or, and how in this world where people are increasingly um, annotating things, responding to things, having an expectation of being able to, to sort of talk back, how does an institution like the New York Times that is, sort of, that is uh, predicated on, ha- that, you know, it's, it prides itself on having a certain kind of, um, uh, you know, 
set of editorial standards and a certain kind of credibility? And how do you sort of maintain that while still trying to open it up a bit? You know, and that's a, an interesting tension that you know I think we're constantly working with there, figuring out what's the right balance. So. Is the five levels deep thing one of those things like uh, seven plus or minus two of the number of things you well, can keep in your mind? I mean, should we never design a, a web that has a site that has more than five levels? I don't, I don't what's wanna, the story? I, I want to be careful of making any rules for anybody, but. Uh, I think it's it's interesting when I um, I've been involved actually on a project where we actually tried to test uh, how far people can find how how long it takes for somebody to get lost in a website. Ooh, that's a nice one. And uh, we actually it was pretty clear we were able to actually we had a big this is a big uh, you know sort of Mongo you know website corporate website with millions of pages on it and uh, it was pretty clear that after about six levels into like the hierarchy of the website. Uh, people had no idea where they were. They could not orient themselves. But within those first six levels, people could understand, oh, that one's above, you know, I'm below this level and I'm above this level. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, they just couldn't quite, their brains couldn't quite process it. So so there might be something there, you know. Here's a question from Laura Welcher. Where's Laura? Right here. The argument that the web has strong characteristics of orality over literacy is compelling. With the growing prevalence of video online, like YouTube and so on, do you think it is becoming more so and is a better medium for expression of oral cultures. Hmm, that's great. Question. And yeah, this is um, a real kind of throwback situation. Yeah, you know, absolutely. We're getting preliterate. Well, yeah, and I think going back to uh, sort of storytelling as a unit of culture, you know, and, and opening that back up, where instead of having sort of stories being filtered through institutional sort of gateways, you know, the, having a more, more of an open situation where anybody can tell a story. Um, it does seem. I mean, I think that's a lot of the appeal of YouTube is that that sort of. Uh, you know, sort of direct personal, that, the feeling of a direct personal connection, you know. It's interesting that when um, Walter J. Ong coined that term, when he talked about orality, he actually referred to, um, he coined the term secondary orality, meaning it's not exactly oral culture. It's sort of mediated oral, it's like oral culture, it's mediated, but it's not quite the same thing. So it has characteristics of it, but we don't want to take that too far, you know, so. so. Here's a question from Mike Phillips. Where's Mike? Right there. Uh, do you use Hyman Mintzberg? Is that right? Uh, businesses are structured to process information. Ad agencies are horizontal. Oil companies are pyramids. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> to be researched. Okay. <laughs> uh, Kevin Kelly handed me one of his own questions. Uh, what about the idea that web technology overthrows the need for any kind of categorization, categorization and everything is miscellaneous, you only need one category, uh-huh. miscellaneous? Well, I've heard, I've heard that theory. <laughs> um, uh, I think there is some truth to the idea that you know, the web certainly opens up the possibilities for anybody to potentially categorize anything in their own way. At the same time, people, even just at an individual level, seem to feel an impulse to categorize things, even if it's not, you know, at the level of, you know, the Library of Congress, even if we're just organizing, like, our bookmarks or trying to keep track of things, we do seem, we are putting our email into folders, for instance. We seem to have some kind of impulse to, to make categories. I think what's interesting, though, is the question of how, how important is it to um, sort of solidify those categories or to have kind of a shared understanding of things. And uh, it does seem like the web introduces a challenge to the, to, to the, uh, possibility of having sort of stable cultural, uh, stable container, you know, that works at a, at, a, at a broader level, the way like a folk taxonomy 
gives a whole tribe you know, a, a stable understanding of things, it does seem like the web tends to fragment that, and it's hard to have those sort of authoritative categories. So it does seem to throw that into question, but, but we still seem to somehow want to categorize things. There's a question from Gareth Spohr. Uh, any speculation on what libraries look like 100 years from today? Let, let me, um, you've just done four, three and a half billion years of organizing information here, so you probably get a sense of a certain uh, directionality or thrust, or are we in a phase change now that has so, uh, you know, is Kurzweil yeah. right that the, the singularity of information will be that we have no idea what's on the other side oh, of the membrane? I think that's probably more like it. I, I'm a little really? hesitant to make, uh, well, I'm, I think it is some, I think the future is largely unpredictable, but, but as far as the future of libraries goes, I, I actually, I'm sort of optimistic about them, at least in maybe, a, you know, a hundred year time frame. Um, it's interesting that over the last 10 years, uh, as the internet has exploded and everyone's using the web, public library attendance has actually skyrocketed. All right, so why is that? You would think that's counter, you would think people would just be staying home looking at their web browsers. Well, it actually seems like libraries um, play a role beyond just sort of letting people get information. They actually seem to fulfill some deeper need that we have to actually share physical space and come together uh, to, uh, to, to, to read, or even if things that seem to be seemingly solitary th activities, somehow people seem to find comfort in doing them together. People come there to you know, read or even just to look at the internet. There's something about that physical uh, you know, container that seems to, to, to fulfill some kind of need. So I, I think they'll be around in some form. But, but so we'll, libraries will increasingly be designed as social spaces rather than data well, spaces? Well, I think you're starting to see that. I mean, mm -hmm. I think if you go to a lot of libraries, you see more and more sort of open space, a lot mm -hmm. of, you know, computer terminals and, you know, more, playing more of a sort of community role. But, but in uh, ancient Rome, libraries also played a very similar role. They were very, their public libraries were actually big in, in ancient Rome. Um, and uh, people came to them for much the same reasons they go to libraries today. They were, they were not just places to read books, although that was obviously the, you know, part of the draw, but they, they, they were also sort of community centers as well, so. I was impressed that been went recently to the Rem Koolhaas Library in Seattle. Okay. And it's intensely social. It's beautiful. Isn't it? As yeah, you yeah, go up and yeah. down the lane, it's gorgeous yeah. and strange. Yeah. But everywhere you look, there's people doing right, stuff. Right. Yeah, the books are all in the basement, right? You got Basically, yeah. 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 And yeah. so it's a people yeah. show. Right. And people go there for the people shows. Near right. Yeah. Okay, here's a interestingly complex question from looks like Chas Warner. Back there somewhere. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your book, The Codification of human knowledge systems, mythologies, et cetera, is allowing introspection, thus uh, enabling us to better understand them, and therefore ourselves. Do you see a parallel in the codification of time? For example, the 10,000-year clock, thank you. Um, how do you codify the future? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> um, uh, hmm. Well, I think you guys are doing that. <laughs> you guys got that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's not much of an answer. Um, well, we don't know yeah. what we're doing. We, we oh, look at people okay. like you well. to tell us. <laughs> okay, here's an interesting one from Robin while you ponder that. Robin? Over there waving. Uh, what about the difference between shared public knowledge systems and knowledge systems that are secret or proprietary? Have these systems evolved? Are they in any sense competitive with the public systems? 
Uh, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. I think there is a lot of, uh, I mean, I think right now that's becoming a big, uh, you know, growing issue as we see, um, you know, private interests controlling larger and larger bodies of information. I think it's also interesting we're seeing, I think, for all the proliferation of, of information out there in sort of the public sphere, somehow it seems um, kind of paradoxical that, that actually uh, the most valuable information, it seems to be actually becoming more privatized in a way, or you see like these... Uh, you know, uh, organiza- research organizations or Wall Street organizations. I mean, information is becoming more complex. You know, the instruments are becoming more complex, and the, the, the um, extraction of meaning is becoming a more specialized kind of activity. And it seems to be commanding. You know, this, the more sort of expert, specialized information is becoming more and more expensive and less and less available to to sort of the public. So, so while certain kinds of information are you know increasingly freely available, anyone can get a stock quote. Um, you know, the the more um, sort of sophisticated forms of analysis seem to be becoming more and more um, privileged. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, here's the last question. Looks like it's, uh, is it Andrea, Judith? Anadea. Anadea, Judith. Okay. Um, one of the main differences between oral and literate information is that the written word made information static. Literal truth was literate truth. The web is now taking us out of the static form, but giving us so many versions of truth that we don't know how to sort it. What is the new definition or view of truth in this new system? Hmm. Okay. Well, I think it's... Uh, there are some people who have suggested that we are actually at risk of entering into a phase of cultural amnesia because we are creating this medium that's constantly being rewritten or overwritten or uh, and, and may or may not be preserved. I mean, you know, I know there are projects I worked on on the web, you know, two years ago, three years ago, ten years ago, that there's no trace of them. Um, and, you know, there's, well, there's the Internet Archive, which has, you know, some of that, but it's, not, you know, it's, it's uh, inconceivable that anybody could really create a, a stable record of what we're creating right now. Uh, so I think there's a real sort of un, largely unacknowledged risk that even though we think we're creating this um, sort of seemingly, um, you know, accessible, you know, body of information, um, we may just be sort of overriding ourselves into oblivion, you know, so it's... Uh, so is the idea of a canon basically obsolete now? Well... Or does it have ever more value in light of all this ephemerality? Well, I think there's a point of view that actually physical objects become more valuable. You know, actually the physical book in some ways becomes more, um, you know, a, a, a more useful thing because it is static and it does have sort of a record, you know. Uh, it's interesting to look... I, I, Previous life, I went to actually went to library school, and I remember uh, having the opportunity to uh, actually pick up a Gutenberg Bible, which is you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old, and that thing is still, still kicking. I mean, it's fine, you know. No dead links in it. No, no dead links. Yeah, it's working, working fine. Yeah, and uh, what's interesting is the most the books that are actually they're books from like they're eight nine hundred years old that are actually in great shape. Uh, it's actually the information from about a hundred years ago to two hundred years ago that was printed on acid paper that's corroding sort of as we speak. So, you know, it's hard to say what's sometimes what's, what's going to be permanent. But, um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I would not put a lot of stock in the stability of stuff that's of, of electronic information. I think it's an open question how well the stuff is going to get preserved over time. We don't seem to come up with a mechanism for that yet. So. What did the librarians say on that? I mean, we got Mike Keller here from Stanford, uh-huh. and you obviously stay connected with the library uh-huh. world. Do they yeah. see light at the end of the preservation tunnel, or is it just a hopeless morass? Well, I think they, they gave up on trying to archive the web a while ago because it just doesn't seem 
feasible, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think they're doing what they can to archive the print record, and the, certainly there's a lot of activity going on with the digitization of, of printed text. So I think that's a you know a step in the right direction. But um, but there's also there's also people who are concerned about that as you know are we actually sort of destroying? Are we is it kind of modern day book burning in a way? We're kind mm -hmm. of destroying these books for the sake of ostensibly saving them. Um, I don't know, but it does seem. I don't think there's an easy answer to that problem. I think it's a fundamental, actually, a fundamental technical flaw of the web is it's actually it's a lack of archiving capability. So, so if the hierarchical systems fail on that, are the network systems going to somehow uh, come to our rescue with preservation? Well, if there's one trend that seems to emerge over time, every time a new technology comes along, there seems to be this tension between hierarchies and networks, mm -hmm. and every time the sort of an old set of hierarchies gets. Um, ruptured or collapses, you know, there's a, usually a period of chaos and network kind of effects, and then somehow new hierarchies seem to emerge out of that. So, um, I th again, I think it's impossible to predict, but I think it's, I think, uh, you know, we should keep in mind that this is a pretty young technology, and this is, you know, compared to, you know, 20 years after the Gutenberg Press, there were maybe, you know, a handful of people who'd ever seen a book, and here we are, you know, not even 20 years after the invention of the web, and a billion people have used a web browser, so I think there's, I think there's time, so. So there is light at the end of that tunnel. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.